Hey, I'm Michael Clark. Join me on the edge of AI and let's explore the data revolution together. The podcast where we blend AI, creativity with culture. Stay tuned. Hello, AI podcast passengers. Jump on in. Here's what's to come on today's journey. Find out what our guest thinks about creating a digital twin of yourself and why you will want to do that. How data becomes the next currency for all and why he literally flew halfway around the world for a data wallet. All this and more, take your seat. Welcome aboard the Edge of AI podcast. Snap into your safety belt and prepare to explore the depths of the rapidly expanding AI universe. Each episode is a dispatch featuring hyper-relevant reports from the pilots, pioneers, and passengers aboard the AI rocket ship. We explore the latest use cases and developments in AI, hear from experts building tech, and learn how this disruptive force is transforming industries and society. I'm Ron Levy. I'm your captain for today's voyage to the edge of AI. Just like most of you, I've embraced the spirit of exploration and entrepreneurship throughout my life, from starting my own business before graduating high school to traversing the world's most challenging terrains, I've always sought new frontiers and adventures. I built one of the largest award-winning custom home companies in Los Angeles, and most recently, I've navigated complex regulations while founding and leading a public company that is dedicated to applying technology and training. Buckle up and get ready. Let's tackle uncharted territories in AI today with curiosity as our guiding star. Today's episode features Michael Clark from MasterCard. Michael Clark is a maverick in the realms of data, future value, and digital innovation. He brings over 20 years of experience in forecasting and implementing cutting-edge technology solutions. His expertise has transformed leading global companies, addressing some of the world's most intricate data challenges and steering them towards a digital forward future. Currently, Michael is championing the use of data as a currency helping businesses seize tomorrow's opportunities today. His latest book, which is Data Revolutions, The New Currency of You, offers a roadmap for businesses and governments to safeguard citizens in an era where the nature of value is rapidly evolving. Welcome, Michael. How are you? All good, Ron. Really excited to be here. Really looking forward to this conversation. Well, fantastic. So you've been pivotal in helping communities and companies navigate data challenges. Could you share your journey with us and what you're currently focusing on? Yeah, it's a great question. It's funny when you start looking back in terms of where you've come from, you sometimes forget some of those little nuggets that got you here. I have to admit, my journey started like every kid, I guess. I'm not going to go this far back, but at 10 years old, my father bringing home the world's first computer, and all of a sudden you're programming it. Green screen grows green and you see data. And I think I was hooked from that moment. And throughout my working career then, I've been lucky to be worked for some of the biggest companies in the world, big financial institutions, even fintechs, using data to drive insights, create new products. I mean, to where I am today in terms of the concept of the book, but also advising banks around the world, even governments, in terms of how they start to look at data very differently. And you have been. I mean, we had the pleasure of speaking a little bit prior. And from my point of view, you are really looking at data in a different manner than most. And I'll call it a looking around corners about what data means for all of us individually, as well as companies tomorrow, as opposed to today. 
Can you talk about data monetization, which was part of it, and sort of global examples of those types of things? This is a great question because I think there's often a lot of confusion what data monetization means. I think if you bring up the topic in any business or even to an individual, I think fear normally comes across their eyes. Because we've heard so many stories about looking after your data, the Cambridge Analytica crisis and various other things. But actually, when people are monetizing data, they're deriving the insights and they're monetizing the insights from data. So there are some great examples around the world. So if you take companies like Schneider Electric is a great example where they take all the data from their IoT devices, anonymize that, and then sell that on marketplaces. And companies or even governments use that data, for example, for wind farms to understand carbon usage, even forward plan and predict. We have examples in JDAX in Japan, where they're literally selling every form of data you can imagine from tourist information and so on. So that's a great example of data marketplaces that are emerging around the world. And let's not forget, companies are using data to also add on analytics on top of their products. So they're not necessarily selling the data at that point. They're using it to add more value to their product. I think you described a couple of different angles for that. One was sort of the larger corporate data, and some of that would be sort of reporting on it. But also you mentioned the IoT devices pulling sort of wind farm information as an example. So it's actually stationary devices that are collecting data real time and live time as well. We haven't even gotten into the individual's data, but starting there, that's pretty fast. I think just on that note as well, on the individual's data, because you did ask about monetization, in the Web3 world, we already see examples of this today with data unions, for example, where people pull their personal data together and it's sold on a marketplace through a smart contract and everybody in that pool is rewarded. So we're seeing new things emerge from the individual as well as at the corporate level. Which is a combination of AI, blockchain, digital payments, that type of thing, correct? It's all kind of merging together. Exactly. Yeah. How is it redefining digital ownership or data ownership? I think this is the elephant in the room. We've been on this journey for some time. I think if you look at regulation like GDPR, um, you look at other countries that are trying to put data back into the hands of users. I think this ownership journey, particularly monetization, is starting to put the power back into the user. Literally three weeks ago, Brazil started to make into mandate that users would now be able to monetize their data. So I think this has big implications as we start looking forward, but also incredibly positive things as well. So what do you think drove them? Why are they uniquely looking at this? Is there something about what they've done in the past that brought them to this? Because I agree with you. I can imagine every governmental body is going to end up doing this at some point. If I take Brazil as the example, I think they've gone down a journey. And I recommend everybody look at the YouTube from the governor in terms of his explanation of that journey. They've been piecing together the puzzle gradually. So they built the PIX network, which was account-to-account payments. So they almost built a digital rail, which allows data to move across that rail. There's other legislation that they've, you know, their GDPR, for instance, the has nine points where the rest of the world has eight. Oh, their ninth point wants to know, actually, don't tell me what you did with my data. Tell me what you did with my data after that. So who else got my data other than you? So there are things in legislation that some countries are starting to put in place, which is painting the way and paving a path to ownership, which makes that example is quite unique, but also does that become a blueprint for other governments to follow around the world? My gosh, talk about peeling away an onion. It just feels like it gets on some levels more and more granular and on some levels just bigger and bigger. It's almost both directions, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you see it changing? Let's talk about the individual for a moment with this ability to control and even capitalize on your own data anymore. Tell me a little more about what that looks like from an individual standpoint. 
I think for an individual, this unlocks so much potential. So today, for example, our data is hidden behind services that we use. Whilst people start to own their own data, could they start piecing together their own utilities? Could they have data savings products where they use their data as a means of savings? Could data drive new investments? So could I be using it to build a data bond, for example? Or for the individual, could they even use it to manage their health, create personalized fitness plans? There are so many things that we can do with our own data that we don't do today because we freely give it away. Once we have control of it, we almost end up creating personal services for us, which is where the AI comes in. Because now the AI can become our true personal assistant, helping us manage our finances, because now our AI knows everything truly about us, because it's using the data that we own about us or any data that we bring into that. So when it comes to the value to us individually and how it might change our lives, would I be right to assume that with fractional payments through digital payments, right, because the data you're selling, you might be getting small fractions of, that's not going to be enough to change someone's life. That's a question, mm-hmm. actually. But the benefits you get by sharing it could be the results of what someone else does with that data. Is that fair? I think so. In yes and no. So yes, it's what someone does with it. Because actually, what's really happening is people are exchanging value. Because data on its own is worthless. It's actually only when it's exchanged for a unit of value does it become meaningful as, as context. So to your point, yes, but data is weird. So data can be everything and nothing at exactly the same time. That same data piece of data that you own in one ecosystem is not valuable at all. In another ecosystem, it could be incredibly valuable. So let's just take the example, maybe there's a company doing heavily lots of research for health, and maybe I have a piece of data that they don't have. Now, suddenly the bigger question is how now valuable is that data, that company versus what it is today, because they have access to it, but now we own it. Now, suddenly that piece of data may become incredibly valuable because they need it to solve that problem. Which really you're touching on now, which is the changing nature of value. And I know that's covered in your book extensively. And you're, as far as I'm concerned, the exact right guy to speak of that. Let's switch over to the business landscape. How is the changing nature of value going to change businesses as a whole? I think this is, again, another elephant in the room, because if you think about how businesses run today, it's based on productivity and efficiency. Whereas when we start talking about data and value, it doesn't really fit into those two buckets because value now is about intrinsic value and extrinsic value. So it's the individual that owns it has a means of value. And then there's the value to the outside world. Sure. So yeah. what businesses need to do now is look at their data like liquidity and actually start thinking about where, where is actually the value in our data and where is the value that we want. And value actually now to the consumer that owns their data is actually your core values as a business. It's actually, what is your ethical values? Can I trust you with my data? Do you have a track record of managing my data securely? Are you transparent? Do Are you relevant to me? And let's not forget, data is a value, but don't forget our reputation will also become a form of value. Even our core values will become a form of value. So all of this is going to change the way that businesses measure things and also start to think about the data that they have in terms of how it's used and how it's measured, because it's going to be done in a very different way to what we know today. And we see those changes already happen. And you mentioned in your book, you mentioned a term called, that really refers to going from knowledge workers to knowledge executors. And I think that that's a fascinating little clip right there. Go ahead and elaborate on that if you can. Yeah, this is one of my favorite bits in the book, actually, because I think today, look, before AI, what did a business do? 
Maybe they hired an agency to go off and get some insight. Maybe they hired an army of people to go and collect information, right? Which then they would need to somehow disseminate and figure out what to do with it. So they're left with knowledge. But still, we know that a lot of businesses don't execute knowledge, which in Greek times was known as wisdom, right? So the big difference with AI is that actually AI now is going to be the one gathering the insights. Because AI is going to be trawling the ecosystem, looking for value that is owned by people that a business needs to be able to turn into knowledge. So now the businesses of tomorrow now need to become knowledge executors because AI is the one curating the content for you. Now, the big difference for a business of tomorrow is, okay, I'm going to get you the knowledge, but do you have the ability then to look at it, understand it, and then make a decision? But are you then in a position to respond? And that means you also need an adaptable organization. And ultimately, what that means for the business is now you have a new employee that doesn't sleep, doesn't take breaks, and doesn't take holidays. This is your AI knowledge worker, and the business now needs new roles that can actually now interpret knowledge and use it to make decisions. And the big difference is time is not on your side because the data owner may decide, actually, I'm only going to give you this data for a period of time that I decide. So, oh my gosh, it just opens up so many things. So I, with my own data, can actually rent my data or rent access, I should say, rent access to my data for that period of time. So that's quick. They've got an AI product has to grab that data take it, do what it will with it. But then the next step is now we have too much data. We have a lot of data. So it's going to take AI to analyze that data as well because of the amount you can collect, right? Let's go back to the human worker. What role do they play in that process or from that point, I might say? So I think that there's two roles they'll play. So I think a lot of the terms we use AI is almost the human on the shoulder, right? So a lot of the human work in some cases, the humans won't always make the decision end to end because the AI will do that for you because the decision yeah. is repeatable and very simple. For the stuff that moves the dial, which is either critical decisions for the business, the employee has to do a, two, a couple of things, right? The first is computer says no, doesn't look good in front of the regulator. So the worker has to be able to understand how the algorithm operates and ultimately how AI is coming up with the decisions that it is. And the second is then the people who need to make the decisions almost need a middle layer, which could be an employee who's interpreting some of those big decisions and presenting it back to the workforce or the management team to make that decision. But in essence, it's going to require a new operating model, a new structure, a more adaptable organization, because it's almost like data is becoming organic. So this thing is constantly changing. If you miss it, you may lose the opportunity that could move your business forward or actually protect you against the competition. But it's not, you don't see where I can put my whole business on complete autopilot, right? To have these different AI machines, I'll call them machines for lack of a, and their various platforms and assessments. So you don't see it where that could literally just program that walk away. And while there will be examples of that, do you think the vast majority of companies and businesses will be, oper- be able to operate that way? I think, yes. And I think there, will, there actually will be companies that will be run by DAOs that could eventually run by an entire AI operationally. I still think you need humans to set the vision and direction for that company. Yeah. And I still think you need subject matter experts and communities to continually validate the outputs from AI. So there may be examples where you could spin up an entire company, which is an AI-driven company in a DAO managed by maybe a handful of people who set the vision, and the community then keeps on checking the outputs that are created by the AI. But if we're talking multinational corporations, AI to me then just becomes another employee. And then that organization then needs to decide the role that our new worker is going to play and what is the management system around them and how do they operate. 
So it's kind of fascinating. If I go back in history, and I guess I'll only go back to the transition from majority of work work being blue collar versus white collar, right? That transition from the majority being blue collar to white collar, that transition happened in 1960, right? And that seems about right. If we look at it, that's when computers started doing their thing and people were able to operate in a different manner. And there was less people getting their fingernails dirty and the transition started. And then we've ramped up and you can go from the computerization to the internet to many of the progressions that have happened. And I think it would have been very hard in 1960 to predict how we operate now. Because when you think about, if you looked at it in 1959, you might've been very, very fearful that this transition will lead to no work for people, right? But that's not what happened. Just the work certainly just changed, right? So if we look at that standpoint moving forward, for people that are looking at it saying, great, what are people going to do? How are they going to live? What are they going to work on? Anything physical will still have to be done. I shouldn't say anything, but there's still a substantial amount of physical workers that have to do their thing. But when it comes to all the office workers and all the people that are white-collar workers, what's next? It's really interesting. Yeah. We, we often hear the narrative with AI that it's going to take people's jobs, and it will. They will, and that's a fact. Yeah. But we often lose sight of the fact that what's fueling AI, our data. So actually, does our data become a form of universal basic income? Does our data become a form of savings and a currency that AI needs to operate? Because there are some serious statistics, right? By 2026, Europol predict at least 90% of the internet will be of AI-created content. So for us to have a version of the world that we believe in, and AI can run the way that we would want it to, it has to be running on real-time data, and I mean real data. So if people are constantly creating data every minute and every second of a day, that becomes incredibly valuable for an AI network, an AI and machines that need that data to operate. And the irony is every human alive creates about 1.7 megabits of data every second. So to put that into context, every human being alive every day creates the equivalent of 733,000 digital photographs in data terms. So you imagine if all of the people alive suddenly own their own data, they could literally be farming and providing the data that AI needs to provide public services and engagement. So is this a decentralization of the businesses that are going to deal with them? Because there's so many niches, right? And will there be smaller companies that will be dealing in specific niches over a massive company that controls a vast majority? Yeah, I, th I think I think what you'll actually see is, because obviously there's this transition from data to value, right? So me as the user, I own my data and it needs to turn into value. I think, not to give too much away from the book, but I think there'll be a utility layer that does that translation into that value ecosystem where businesses will be creating and accessing data. There has to be businesses in there to make sure that the environment is secure, data is priced accordingly. There are almost banks that will hold people's data for them. There'll all be these niche players that will exist, as well as obviously the businesses that operate and use data in different ways as we know today. So there will be, there may even be niches of companies that even look after specific data for you. Because let's take health data, that's incredibly complicated, probably has very difficult data structures. And you may want a specific company to manage that data on your behalf, for example, that only focuses on health and has dedicated AI capabilities that only operate in that sector. So you may find companies that operate in niches and niches, or you may find companies that are one-stop shops. And obviously, you still have your traditional organizations, but they may be providing different products. Like what's happening in banking, right? People are now moving to digital asset management from a traditional asset management, and it's logical that the same model will apply to data. 
That's a great analogy you gave right there, because if you look at banking and what's changed, I know my bank that I deal with locally here have put in what's called ITMs and their information maybe. So they're two-way ATMs. So if you need to talk to someone, you hit a button and at some central room somewhere, you get a person. But the whole idea is less tellers, right? Less people working in the branch themselves. And I would suggest that that might be temporary because if you look, there are banks now that operate without any branches whatsoever. And I'd suggest that most of the people that deal with those banks don't see a value loss in dealing that way, right? So that whole industry has seen its change. And then when you go into financial businesses now, I would say you can manage your own money better today than you could have in the past with the amount of information that's available. So by having all this AI going on, these changes that I just mentioned in banking, in the finance world, you kind of look at what's next and you pair them together. It's just all a change, but the change has already started. Completely. We already see branches with digital humans in them, right? Powered by chat GPT. That's a real thing. The other thing, which I think we touched on this at the start of the interview was, what does it mean for people when they own their own data? Well, one of the biggest challenges in finance is inclusion and financial education. If I own my own data, my AI understands my financial education level. Who's to say now that AI doesn't deliver me my financial information in a way that I actually understand based on the data I have? How needed is that? The unbanked and the underbanked are just left behind today. Completely. And it's because either financial products are complex and described in such a way. So the question is, well, actually, why do we need to solve that problem? Why can't AI just do that for us based on the data that individual has? And guess what? When Apple launched the glasses, they actually gave us the ability for the first time to store human emotion as a data set. So you combine all of that with someone's own data, and suddenly we get completely different engagements than we've ever had before. But let me put a bit of a spotlight on that. With these glasses, they'll be able to read, whether it be facial expression, whether it be how your eyes react, or the sound of your voice, picking up your mood and your confidence on the subject, whether or not you understand it, all that's picked up live time. So with an AI product, they could then deliver the education with all those points in mind and meet you where you are, so to speak. Yeah, let me give you an example, a story actually in the book. So today, if your heart raises and you're wearing an Apple Watch, the first reaction is you probably need to go to the doctor because you've got a heart condition, right? That's what it's seeing your heart rate rise. What Apple doesn't know is you just opened your bank statement and you can't pay your bill. But if I had my augmented glasses on when I opened my bill, I would correlate the data coming from the Apple Watch with what's coming through the glasses. And all of a sudden, my financial assistant appears from my bank and is offering me a same-day loan to pay my bill. So all of a sudden, these nonverbal cues that we can't record today because 55% of human emotion is nonverbal, Apple and these augmented glasses that will follow will, for the first time in human history, allow us to record human emotion as a data set. Now, as my own data, and I choose to run my own personal AI on top of that, I now get a whole set of experiences that are truly personal to the individual. It's almost like an interlude within the interview, but I want to remind people that what you're breaking down, what you're talking about, your resume slash experience is with some of the biggest companies in the world working through these subjects. And I don't think anyone that doesn't have that kind of background could have languaged it the way you just did. It's mind-blowing, but it's crystal clear. And quite honestly, it all makes sense. Kind of amazing. I assume you're watching companies go in this direction right now ahead of our knowledge about these things. Is that right? I guess any good person that's looking forward is you look a little bit backwards, but then you look at everything and anything. So it's almost like you're looking at this macro review and trying to piece a jigsaw together. And to be honest, that's what the book is, is I've just pulled all the puzzle pieces together based on things that I've seen, things that are emerging and just dots that are joining. 
the book is written in a story format. So anything that's new, I tell a story because like I just did with you, because actually some of this stuff can be a little bit conceptual and a little bit, or maybe it's a bit sci-fi, right? But actually some of these things are possible today. It's just the fact that we're living in a world of convergence and exponential growth. Like, for example, I often use the example of it took 50 years to get 50 million people to use the telephone. It took two months to get 100 million people to use ChatGPT. So we are living in an era where our acceptance of technology is higher. Convergence of industries is happening. So health is converging with finance and so on. And technologies are combining. And this is how a lot of things that I'm describing are now possible. Because in essence, when you bring all these pieces together, you're basically shaping a new economy. These are really big, not just ideas, big things that are actually happening that will will hit our personal shores very, very soon. Let's talk about digital twins for a moment, because I know you talk about that in your book. You've got a bit of a hypothesis on the sort of potential implications of this. Maybe give us a little brief on that. This is such a fascinating topic, because I think even the evolution of that topic itself is fascinating. And considering it's not that old, although digital twins, the first digital twin was created by NASA believe it or not, to get men back from the moon safely, right? The ones that didn't land on the moon in the Apollo mission. They built a replica on the ground. And actually, that's what was used to bring the men back safely. And that evolved very quickly into digitized versions, which we see in terms of factories, even machines digitized as twins, right? Where this is heading, though, and a lot of people are talking about this now, even the EU has a paper on this, is could we end up creating a digital twin of us? So in essence, if I, for example... Could my parents inherit data to me? So at birth, I get a digital twin version of me, which allows me then to A-B test medication, maybe understand my own health so I can plan my future without actually taking the risks of medication that may not work on me. And using the data from my parents and everybody else, because my parents, for example, one of them may be diabetic and I'm born with diabetes. So I can use all that data and all the experience they've built on their life and then build a digital twin of me which basically manages my health, my fitness, and I can use it to manage my everyday life. Now, the EU are writing a paper, I think it's already out there, which is about virtual human platforms, even to the point where the EU are building what's called Destination Earth, which is a complete digital twin of planet Earth. And you imagine if I brought user-owned data into social and economic data, what type of picture of the world would I have from a sustainability perspective? So you can look at webinars that all talk about digital humans and digital twins. I think when you inject human-owned data to this, you end up with your truly own personal twin, potentially from birth through the rest of your life. Really powerful. And it actually coincides with a book I read recently called The Hustle Trap, which is a non-tech book, just to be clear. But it's about the generational change from, I'll just say, our parents, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard. And this transition where, well, working hard can be redefined a little bit. It's not about how many hours and how much punishment you'll put up with to get to what you would call success. And that's now changed into working smart because you can reach the same level as those overall goals in a different way. And quite honestly, using the old way may not work out so well. So that to me, the combination of that thought and what you're talking about now is a way to measure where we are, where we've come from and where we're going. And I just think it's really powerful. I mean, you just touched on a little bit, but it's shaping the value-based ecosystem and the economy. So I'm talking Mm -hmm. about all the changes that we're talking about and the value layer you're you're talking about. Give us a little bit on the changes we might see in the coming, call it few years, five years, something like that. It's really funny, like literally just before this interview, I had another conversation with someone and they kind of got some of the elements of the book really well. 
some of the things, and these are happening now, and it's, I think there'll be an expansion of these. I think we'll start to see data investment vehicles emerge. So data bonds, data ETFs, data equities. If you look in the Web3 world today, you almost have the basis of a data ETF in Coinbase where they bring all the data protocols together and you can invest in them. So the natural course is, will we see data bonds emerge like we will in property, right? Will we see ETFs and equities? All of this will be changing hands in this value layer. Historically, going back to knowledge, we look at data, information, knowledge, and wisdom, right? But in the new value layer, I may not want information I may just want data because actually I'm a company in the ecosystem that's an aggregator. So I'm going to take all that data and I'm going to aggregate it and push it back into the ecosystem. And actually then somebody else might be listening who wants that data to turn into knowledge, maybe to turn it into wisdom. So we'll see this ecosystem where value will be constantly changing between people and machines because everybody wants a different piece of value. But every time they change and update that value, it pushes another piece of value back into the ecosystem. So from a consumer perspective, what we'll start to see is exponential growth, but of value moving and changing between people. So you might see new utility products, you might see new banking type products. As an individual, you'll start to experience new services. Digital wayfinding will become a real thing around supermarkets. You may get off the back of that new offers based on your data that you share. You're going to see so many different forms of interaction value moving to the point where banks will start offering you potentially in the future different data savings products. And you may even see niche companies emerge. So I'm incredibly excited about what potentially can emerge as we start changing value between people, because all of a sudden now you create new utilities, you even create the power of community where people can come together in a complete area and share insights and data with them to maybe improve that community in terms of how it runs. So I think there's so much that we're going to see in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, and I don't think there's any denying that it is coming, in large part, the seeds of it are already growing. So it's just really good to put a magnifying glass on it, crystallize it, and and then you'll recognize it earlier than you otherwise would have. And I, I think that that's really great. So the idea of an information-based ETF is coming. So I think it's pretty amazing. So tell me when your book is coming out, and then once it does, how do people get their hands on it? So we're kind of scheduling for spring 2024, or at least at some point next year. Then I think it'll go to certain markets first. Typically, as a first-time author, I know that it probably goes to Singapore first, that sort of part of the world, and then it, it follows the trajectory then. So it'll be in usual outlets, Amazons of this world and other places. I will say the book is not a technical book. There are much better books that write about data than I can write. My book is really about aimed at leaders and governments. So in the sense of every chapter that I write, I tell a government what to do. I tell a leader what are the things that you need to think about? Because ultimately, this is about helping businesses survive and stay relevant in the ecosystem, but also then looking at governments to protect us and put the guide rails in place to make these things possible. It's written as a book in stories, which has humor. Some of the stories I've talked about today, which really bring things down a level so people can understand. But it's really laying down a blueprint and piecing a puzzle together for people and then really showing them, right, once you have the puzzle, what are the changes in your life that will take place? from utilities to communities, to all of these things we've described and many more, and then leading eventually to a smart economy. And what does that mean? I love that you mentioned this is your first book. And I think that's a powerful thing because this book is going to encompass all that you've learned across the decades dealing in these subjects. I kind of love that. Typically, a second book, a third book is a smaller sort of dose, I'll call it. Still very valuable, of course, targeted. But right now, this is also new for most of us that I kind of love even that concept. So I think it's really great. What do you think is in store for you next? 
Uh, that is the million dollar question. Honestly, it's more around helping people around this topic. I don't want to be the guy that drops the mic and leaves, right? It's the whole purpose of the book, first of all, is to, and conversations like this is to get it into the public domain and to get people realizing that we're in the midst of, a, of the next revolution. And the next question is, how do you help people along the journey, be it a business or a government? How do we do that? And the likelihood is, look, there probably will be another book that follows it because it's natural. I think there's two routes it can go, quite frankly. One is we go much deeper into the smart economy and what does that mean? Or we carry down the track of the data revolution and we start to focus on governance and economics, really start to unpack the economic models that sit under this and more around the future. So we can go in many different directions. But one thing is for sure, my overall goal with this is to leave this place better than I found it. And this book is a means of helping everybody take advantage of a currency, which is the currency of them. You're going to nail it that way because it makes sense to me. Even in the space of the time we've been talking here, there's four or five sequel books in different directions that no one person would ever have the time to write them all. But I hopefully ultimately you do get to them because it's critically important. This is all changing. It's changing now. And for those of us that like to stay on top of it, adjust our sales. This is critical information. So it's pretty fantastic. And now a brief interlude from today's show so you can get ready to wave your magic wand with Cast Magic. Our team saved a ton of time and money using Cast Magic for our show, and the potential use cases are boundless for any company creating content. Imagine turning a single recording into a goldmine of engagement for any type of show, webinar, or other type of audio and or video content, whether it's short or long. With Cast Magic, you can save over 20 hours a week. No more tedious transcribing or brainstorming social media posts. Cast Magic does it all, generating show notes, summaries, blog posts, and even newsletters in minutes. Think of it as your content alchemist, transforming every audio or video into a treasure trove of valuable content. Want to experience the magic? Get a seven-day trial on us by going to bit.ly forward slash CastMagicReferral and join Cast Magic's vibrant Slack community of over a thousand innovators. Don't just create, cast your magic with Cast Magic. We're going to head to the next segment now, which is AI wants to know. AI is curious, and so are we. These are 10 quick questions designed to uncover the intriguing human mysteries that AI longs to comprehend but can't quite grasp. It's a snack break in our journey, so keep the answers quick. But the safety belt sign, it's also off. So if it feels right, we can occasionally roam about the cabin, exploring more of who you are and what makes you tick. You ready for this? All right. Well, what's the first thing you ever remember being proud of? Oh, wow. So I still have to go back to the first computer. So I'm proud of it for two reasons. One is I programmed it when I was 10 years old. The second I'm proud of is I finally figured out what a syntax error was maybe when I was about three years later, because I realized it was a spelling mistake and I really was really bad at spelling. So those are probably two things I'm most proud of. Simple thing. When I programmed and secondly, I figured out why it wasn't working. Yeah. But you did that at 10 years old. That's a big statement right there. And Dick a free pass, it. right? Because I was 10. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. That's right. Question number two, what do you need help with that you wish that you didn't? Oh, this is so easy. Life admin. Anybody that knows me is I can write a book on the most amazing topics, but normal life and life admin is not a good mix with me. So I define, desperately define life admin for me. A life admin, anything that involves paperwork, anything that involves expenses, anything that involves organization, <laughs> that's where I need help. <laughs> oh, well, that AI has to get there soon. We know it can. So I'm just waiting, Ron, just waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll go to number three. What do others often look to you for help with? It's really funny. So a lot lately is mentorship. 
because my journey is like I'm self-taught, believe it or not. So I read about 40 books a year and still do. And I'm naturally curious. So I'm one of these people, uh, school didn't work out, university didn't work out because I didn't learn that way. So I lecture now and I've lectured to universities. And a lot of the advice I give now is about how do you keep learning? So how does learning never end? Because I think as we move forward in this technology age, we have to become continuous learners. And I think I get a lot of questions around one, how did I get where I did? But also equally, how do I stay ahead? So I spend a lot of my time giving people advice on how to stay curious, but also how to keep on learning. You said it so well because ChatGPT was the birth of a new chapter for people, I'll call it, right? It's about one year ago from when this interview's happening. And if you would have stopped learning or listening or turned it all off three months ago, six months ago, nine months ago, and let's just go to the three months ago, if you would have done that three months ago, the things we talk about and look at today, at least for most of us, weren't even on our radar, didn't exist, and weren't topics of conversation. So when you talk about continual learning and staying up on things, I believe it's more true now on a daily basis than it's ever been. Yeah, I think you have to find, and someone asked me this a couple of days ago, and how do you stay ahead? And I think as you find people that resonate with you and match your learning style and ways that you can learn. Some people it's a podcast, some people it's audible, some people it's ride reads. In my case, it's all of the above. There's so much knowledge in the ecosystem, you can drown in it. So I think it's really about being very targeted about things you want to learn, the people that you trust, and then follow that model. Develop your own community. You got to have it. We're going to head to number four. We've talked a lot about AI and computers abilities, but what do you treasure most about your human abilities? I've had this conversation a few times, and sometimes I don't do it as service. I think my biggest gift is two things, actually. I'm unconstrained in my thinking, which I think comes from not going to university. I think I'm always open-minded and I'm always curious. But I think my biggest gift is I can join dots that other people can't see. So I almost look at the world like Lego. So my question is never no, it's why not. And there's no such thing as or in my vocabulary, it's and. So actually, I can see two or three things, like the thing I'm writing at the moment. I can see all the puzzle pieces that everybody else can see, but for some reason, I can join them together to make something that doesn't exist. And that's been the constant throughout all my life. Knowing that about yourself is critically important. I can tell you from the time we spent together, you're 100% accurate. You just have a knack and a way about you to do just that. So I think it's really great. What do you think throughout your whole life is the most consistent thing about you? I think this is an easy one, actually. It's not just learning. Okay, so I've always taken calculated risks. And the second thing is I've always tried what I learned. So basically, I've always continually learned to be three steps ahead. But more importantly, everything I learn doesn't become knowledge. It becomes something that's executed. So I'm the type of person that will read about something and then be able to do it. But then I'll do it in a very calculated way. So then I learn by doing, which is the yep. consistent throughout my life. And then from there, then I've learned a new skill. And then using that as a basis to move forward. And I guess the other constant is just sharing. Like, as I think everybody has a duty when they learn something is to share it. And I either share it in podcasts, I share it with friends and colleagues, or I share it in writing. And I think that's been a constant always. Well, this push in the tech world toward decentralization, I'll call it over the last 13 to 15 years, has, from what I've seen, really enhanced that and people's desires to be less closed off with what they know and share it more and have a bigger community to advance the good thoughts. So what do you think has changed the most? So that was a consistency. What do you think in your life that has changed the most? I was given some advice by a mentor many years ago. 
that I think you go through transitions through your life. I think in your 20s to the 30s, you're just a sponge. You're just absorbing everything you're learning. Yeah. You get to 30 and 40, you learn to piece it together. And then when you're 40, you just know. It just becomes part of you. And I think as I've gone through life, you almost, I know it sounds very cliche, but you get a purpose. And I think that's what's changed through my life is that the more I've learned, it's taken me to a point where I have a purpose. And I think the book became a purpose and a vehicle to help people. And I think that's what was changed through my life. I think in the early days of my career, I was like a learning machine. I was trying to absorb as much as I could and apply as much as I could. But sometimes it was like scattergun. You throw it against a wall and you see what sticks. But I think as I've got older, I'm learning how to use everything I've acquired and piece the puzzles together in my head. But more importantly, it's driven to a direction and a focus. And I'm almost applying first principles to everything now. I think that's what's changed. It's almost like I've built the toolbox of knowledge to a point, and now I've learned how to apply it, then keep on adding it with a purpose and a focus. And I think that's what's changed. Oh my gosh, that's really beautiful. It's really fantastic. What do you find strangest about reality? Honestly, I think it's the lack of curiosity and acceptance for things that the way they are. I find that really strange that you still hear statements today because oh, that's just the way we do it, right? Or oh, that's just the way it is. I think I'm often staggered that Look, 90% of the world's data was created in the last two to three years. Mm. So there's no excuse for getting a piece of data and learning something new and an opinion and remaining curious. I find it incredibly bizarre that people are still naturally not curious and just accept things as they are. And I think we need more people. I use the joke, in my school photograph, everybody wore white shirts and I wore a gray one. And I just think the whole world needs more people in gray shirts mm. who think differently and are naturally curious and want to be different. I'm, I'm always baffled why people just don't want to be curious or just not naturally curious. I think it's a gift we're given as children. And I think it's something, sadly, something we lose in adulthood. I'd like to see more people be curious, I think. Wow. Super powerful answer. And once again, you connected the dots super clear. I think a lot of people are going to relate to what you just said. There's moments in life where we, in an unpredictable moment, feel the most alive and it's really powerful for that moment. When most recently do you remember feeling like that? So I'm really lucky in my job. I get to travel globally. And I think we spend most of our lives just looking down um, or looking at our phones and we never look around us. And I'd never been to California before. And I went bizarrely for 48 hours, which is a story in itself, um, to go and meet one of the world's first data wallets. So it was a company I had to go and see. And, you know, I was in California. I live in Dubai. So it's, I don't get to see autumn very often. And I don't get to see. And I was in... California in that transition, the leaves were brown. I walked past Steve Jobs' house. I was Larry Page's house is over the road. And suddenly you feel alive and you can smell innovation in the air and you can smell change. And it's just that feeling that you're walking in the footsteps of other people. That's what I felt. It's almost like, first of all, it's I'm experiencing a season because I don't get to see that. And it just felt amazing. But then also I was walking in an environment which has just smelled of innovation and change. You don't get those very often when you get the hair standing up and you can feel innovation in the air. I think that was one of the last moments I can remember, I think. And in your case, to feel that you're part of it, I think you painted a beautiful picture of that experience. It's really, really great. We'll go to number nine here. And what is your most unique trait? I guess I think about other people more than myself. It's not necessarily a unique trait, but I try and always put myself in the shoes of others. It's almost like when I'm writing the book, I'm thinking about who I'm writing for. Even in my everyday life, I'm always thinking about other people. Yeah, so a lot of things we've described to me are just abilities. 
again, we spend so much of our time thinking about ourselves often. Sometimes it's good to think about others and what you're doing and how you're doing it. And sometimes that's to my detriment. And most of the time it does me good service. So I think that's an unusual trait in the sense of how I think and how I operate. I'm going to wrap the word empathy around your answer too, because it was very, a lot of that right there. Just super, yeah. super great. If you weren't human, what would you be? Oh, the temptation is to say I'd be an AI machine, right? And I could live forever. It's a very good question. We had this conversation with the kids the other day. If you weren't human, you'd at least want to be a fairly decent animal that can survive, right? Maybe I'd be a lion, because then at least you can still lead and look after the people. So I'd be a lion, I think. The worst case is I don't want to say I'd be a machine because then I'd, I'd lose a bit of my soul. So I'd, I think I'll stay a lion. Yeah, no, even that was well put. Hello again, AI Explorers. Thank you for staying with us on this rocket ship. Your thoughts matter to us, so share what you enjoy most about Edge of AI and what you crave more of on our socials at edgeof underscore AI. Your insights shape our content and guest choices, so thank you for being with us today. On to the next segment. So we're going to head to the next segment now, and it's AI resource list. And this is where we're going to share a handful of your favorite resources in AI. I think you've prepared a couple of ideas here in notes. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, so I think I haven't mentioned it, but I'm really lucky that Brett King is writing the last chapter of my book and has been a huge help through my writing career and just helping me more broadly. Like I'm an alumni of his movement as well, the company that he set up. Brett's written some techno-socialism really starts to get to the heart of some of the things that we talk about in my book, but more deeply in terms of how does society need to change as it relates to AI. And being in Dubai, I'm probably going to say this, Two, three weeks ago, I had the pleasure and privilege to go to the Dubai Future Foundation, where they had the world's biggest gathering of futurists. And they literally laid out all the possible scenarios for AI, how we create a better future for everyone. I met people from the Smithsonian Universe Museum to university lecturers, to futurists, to people who care about the environment. As a museum and as a foundation, I think they do amazing things. And what they do is they not only educate people on a possible future, but they give people hope. And I think that's one of the big takeaways I took from that event. So I think, look, you've got Brett, who very much is, again, a futurist and looking forward and making us think, particularly when it comes to AI. And I think then you have institutions like the foundation, which are trying to lay a possible plausible future whilst giving us a path to get there. And I think those are, those are two great examples in different ends of the spectrum. So you're mentioning of Dubai, which is where you live. I have so many people I know that are in the area of developing AI, fintech, all of the, I'll call it Web3, some may or may not be, but the whole new digital revolution that is happening, right? So a lot's going on there. Can you just give us something brief on what it's like being in Dubai now? And is it that dynamic and dramatic as to what's going on there? And do you feel like you're center of the world of these technologies there? So the way I describe it to people is it's basically the next Silicon Valley. That's the way I describe it, very simply. I wanted to come here because I was truly inspired. Look, it's an environment where there's such an appetite for change and there's a clear vision. It's very rare to see a country with a 10-year vision around where they want to go. And digital is part of everyday life. It's part of the way the public services run. This was one of the first places in the world to bring chat GPT into customer service, for example. So everything is moving. You've got the world's biggest smart cities emerging in Saudi Arabia. You've got, I was in Riyadh a few days ago, and some of the things I saw were incredible. And you've got COP28 was here a week ago. So everything is bubbling here. 
and is becoming a reference point to the rest of the world because they have the benefit as a region to look backwards at what's been done and then try and approach it in a very different way. And to be part of it, yes, California had the history of innovation, but I feel like I'm now in a bubble of pure innovation and a drive to be different and drive a digital agenda. And I think it's an amazing place to be. I mean, I listened to that with pure emotion because you described a beautiful moment. You came to California for the first time, spent 48 hours going by people's homes and businesses that have changed the last decades of our life in a large way and how it it affected you emotionally. I mean, you talked about physical reactions you had when you saw that. I commend the UAE, and I think it's pretty fantastic what they're doing, but I would really, really hope and wish that the next Silicon Valley was right here in the US, whatever city you want to pick. But, 100%. Um, yeah. I'm still a believer in Silicon Valley because that was my first trip there. You could just smell it in the air. It's a history of innovation and it's yep. still ticking. You can still feel it. The good news is it's not the end of the race. It's still the beginning. So we'll go with that. But we're going to sort of wind it down a little bit here, but I want to know where listeners can go to learn more about you, the projects you're working on and follow you a little bit on maybe socials and things. Obviously, the best place to find me is probably LinkedIn. So you can find me on there. We will be doing a Substack fairly soon. As the book is being written, we'll be teasing articles and constantly writing new content in a Substack. So you'll be able to subscribe to that fairly soon. And obviously, there'll be a website, which is due, I think, in the next couple of weeks, which again, will enable you to learn more about the book. One thing I am going to be doing for the book is building an entire metaverse for the book. The book will be a virtual reality environment where people can engage and interact with reports and so on. So that's always been the plan. So the book will be launched, but in in conjunction with that will be a metaverse version of the book where people can go and engage and interact with some of the reports and some of the content that's been written from the book. Well, Michael Clark, you've been absolutely amazing. What goes through my head is let's do this a year out and see what's happening that year after your book gets launched and what's changing ever so quickly in the world of AI. So thank you for taking the time. Really, really appreciate it. And it's time for another safe landing at the outer edges of the AI universe for today. As your captain, Ron Levy, and on behalf of our guests and the entire crew, I'd like to thank you for choosing to voyage with us today. We wish you a safe and enjoyable continuation of your journey. When you come back aboard, make sure to bring a friend. Our starship is always ready for more adventurers. Head over to Spotify and iTunes right now, rate us, and share your thoughts. Your support and feedback mean the world to us. Don't forget to visit edgeofai.xyz where you can learn more about partnering and subscribe to the Outer Edge newsletter for the latest Edge of company news, events, and show drops. In addition, connect with us on all the major social platforms by searching for Edge of underscore AI. Join the exciting conversations happening online. And before we sign off, mark your calendars for our next voyage, where we'll continue unraveling AI's mysteries and advancements. And until then, we will see you later. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. 
Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice.